preparing for our class tonight. I've got a few announcements to run through. First of all, just a reminder, we need uh, to have uh, your email information so we can notify you via email in case of any kind of change or cancellation of uh, services for whatever reason or picnics or whatever. And you go to the westhoustonbiblechurch.org website, click on the About the Church tab, you get a little drop-down menu, and you can go to the bottom last item on that menu and go to that page to sign up. Also, a reminder that on November 4th, Daylight Savings Time will end, uh, so we need to turn our, let me see, fall forward, turn your clocks an hour forward on Saturday night the 3rd. What? Fall back. Okay, see, I get it. I got it backwards. Fall back. That means we get an extra hour of sleep. All right. So turn your clock back an hour on the 3rd. Okay, I'm glad you corrected me on that. Also, pray for Jeff Phipps. He'll be taking another trip down to Brazil. And this ministry that Jeff's developed down there has really taken off. They have a tremendous impact on a number of pastors and churches. They've been using material that's been basically put together by um, uh, uh, DM2 and then Jeff comes along and has taken a lot of material that I've taught on these books. They're teaching Galatians and Colossians. And so he adds that and puts that in within what they're, what they're teaching. So this is a great outreach that we as a church have. And so we need to be uh, supporting him, uh, both in terms of prayer and also in terms of uh, his finances and logistics for carrying out that particular ministry. Also, we have in the foyer the the shoebox ministry for Franklin Graham, the Christmas boxes. We've done this for a number of years. The last day was mistakenly said on Sunday to be the 3rd of November. It is the 10th of November. Okay, so we have about two and a half weeks to get that all taken care of. And I think that's about it, except a reminder that we will not have Bible class on Thanksgiving Day. One last thing, early voting on this extremely significant election uh, began yesterday, record turnout. I know everybody here is aware of that. Uh, we got voter guides that came in. Uh, for from the Faith and Freedom Coalition, there's two pages, I think, or they have a, or one page, and it's front and back, and so it lists about uh, six or eight categories, uh, comparing the two uh, opponents uh, for the positions, and so you can pick those out there out in the uh, in, in the foyer. Okay, now. We need to prepare to study the Word, get our minds all away from all the things that distract us, and we need to focus on the Word and our focus upon the Lord, our spiritual preparation. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy Word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. 
Before we get started, we need to take time to make sure that we are spiritually prepared. That means that we need to confess sin if necessary in silent prayer. And after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that you have provided a grace solution, grace solution for every problem we face in life, grace solution for the greatest problem we'll ever face, which is our sin, and Jesus Christ died for our sin, paid that price as our substitute, and that all that is necessary is simply to trust in him, believe in him, and we have eternal life. And for ongoing sin in our life that All we must do is just admit or acknowledge our sin to you, and instantly we are forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. And, Father, we are thankful that we can be restored to our walk with the Holy Spirit and that you would continue to challenge us by your word to grow, to mature, to learn to live a life that is a focus of worship and spiritual service for you. Father, we pray for this nation. This is a dire time in this nation's history. We have many forces that are anti-Christian, anti-Bible. They are anti-God. And we pray that you would restrain those forces of evil. And we know that Satan is behind them, that he is the ultimate enemy. Based on Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. And we know that behind these human enemies there is their uh, dire enemy of truth and that is satan the father of lies and father we pray that he might be restrained in this election and that you would restrain those who would seek to uh, turn over and overturn the constitution and attack biblical truth the in the the anger the enmity the the vile bitter statements that are made on the internet and in person by so many people who are so uh, filled with anger towards scripture is just something we have rarely if ever seen in this country and father we pray that we as believers can respond in grace and in kindness and that we can be a light to these uh, evil perverse people the wicked ungodly people and recognize they have been deceived by the great deceiver and that we are used by you to bring light and life into their lives. And, Father, we pray that we might be used in such a manner. And, Father, we pray for the protection of our president and all those in the upper echelons of government. And we pray that you might uh, use this election to even strengthen uh, the those in, in the government that understand the truth, that we might continue to have our liberties protected to proclaim the truth of your word, to teach the gospel, to support Israel, and to send missionaries throughout the world. And Father, we pray that you would uh, strengthen us in terms of these objectives. And Father, we thank you now that we can come together to study your word and that you would open our eyes to the truth and how it applies to our own lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
I want to begin by reminding you of a certain verse. But first, what we're focusing on with Israel as we look at Exodus chapter 24 tonight and that which follows is that God is has decreed, determined, and called Israel to be a kingdom of priests. And we talked about this last time, but to be a kingdom of priests, they have to be set aside for service to God. And that is what it means to be sanctified, what it means to be consecrated, to be set apart for that service. And so we started with Exodus 19, showing that they have not yet been sanctified. God appears on Mount Sinai. There's thunder, there's lightning, there's earthquakes, all of this. It's gloom, it's frightening. And then as they are being sanctified, set apart as a nation for his service, they're not experientially sanctified. There will be many, many sins that will come but they're positionally sanctified, then we're going to see this transition that occurs by Exodus chapter chapter 24. Part of the Mosaic Law is quoted in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. And it reads, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Now, this is taking an Old Testament command that's in the Mosaic Law, but it is now applying it directly to church-age believers. And this takes us back to these this whole set of, of words that often are so poorly understood in, in modern Christianity. Even a 100 years ago, they were often misunderstood. And this word holy, holy means to be set apart to the service of God, to be distinct, to be unique. This is true for both the Old Testament word, the verb was kadash. In the New Testament, it's a hagiadzo. And sometimes it was translated as consecration, which is another even worse term today because that's so unfamiliar. It's not a term that people use at all very much. Sanctify and sanctification are, are terms that are less uh, uh, less used. But uh, this word consecration has entered into the vocabulary of the church, and it's just as I pointed out last time, it's just a word that means uh, to, to, to be holy. Uh, the center syllable there, consecrate, that starts S-E-C-R-A-T, that comes from the Latin word sacred. It's just the Latin translation of hagiadzo. It means to be set apart. So you have a one word, consecration, which is based on the Latin, and another word, sanctification, which is based on on the Greek. And, and, and these two terms are used in a way that are actually sanctification is based on another word. I'm not sure which one right now. But, but both are related to uh, being set apart. Now, there's a hymn, hymn I wanted you to draw your attention to, and this is hymn number 441, 441 in your hymnal, and this is, I'm not as excited about some of the verbiage here, it was written originally as a poem, 
and was not set to music for some time. It's written by uh, William Longstaff, and he was an English, uh, an Englishman who uh, served as a deacon. He was a treasurer of the Bethesda Free Chapel in Sunderland, which was a port city in northeast England. His church hosted the very first meetings of Dwight Moody, in England, Moody was the major international evangelist of that time. His musical leader, music leader, was Ira Sankey. And Longstaff became very close friends with both of them. So this is right in the heart of what became known as the, the revivalist era and the growth of holiness theology in the late 19th century. So there's certain overtones of that in some of these hymns. But the core idea of his, of his hymn has great value for, for us today. Think about it this way. If this was true in the 1880s, how much more true it is today. The hymn begins, take time to be holy. See, sanctification isn't something that happens quickly. It's something, in fact, that when we look at this command in 1 Peter 1.16, that we are to be holy, that it is something that we have to plan, we have to think about. We have to understand it doesn't happen overnight. It's not a one-shot decision. See, this was the problem with what became known as holiness theology. It was you make a commitment, you walk the aisle, you dedicate your life to Christ, this sort of a one-shot deal, and after that, uh, then you're sort of on a higher plane of Christianity, and that's, that's not biblically true. It is a lifelong process, and be, being sanctified experientially is distinct from being saved. It comes after, and so there has to be this understanding, that, the, and it's always been confusing in the history of the church, that salvation or justification is totally distinct from experiential sanctification. We are set apart to God positionally in Christ when we are saved through the baptism by the Holy Spirit. But spiritual growth is something that is incremental. It's long, it's slow. Sometimes it's three steps forward and two steps back, and it takes a long time, and we're constantly struggling with the sin nature, the lust of the sin nature, as Peter says, that makes war against the soul. And so there's this internal battle, this internal warfare that takes place in, in our soul. But he brings out such key themes in this in the lyrics that he wrote. He says, take time to be holy, speak oft with the Lord. Prayer is a critical part of our sanctification, not quick prayers, but thought out, conscientious prayers modeled on Psalms, modeled on Paul's prayers in the New Testament, where we think through what it is that we're praying, spending time uh, rehearsing the attributes of God, taking time, re thinking through uh, who he is and what he has done. That's part of adoration. You know, I have the little acronym C-A-T-S, conf uh, confession, then adoration, our praise, and then thanksgiving, and then finally supplication, either intercession for others or making requests for ourselves. So uh, Paul says we're to pray without ceasing. 
And then the second line of the first verse, he writes, abide in him always. So he recognizes that abiding in Christ is not an absolute. This is what Lordship Salvation teaches, that if you're a believer, you automatically abide in Christ. They've confused sanctification with positional truth, experiential sanctification with positional truth. So we're to abide in him always and feed on his word. Uh, make friends with God's children, loving one another as Christ loved the church, serving one another. His next phrase is help those who are weak, forgetting in nothing his blessing to seek. That's where it gets a little weak in that line. But then he says, take time to be holy. The world rushes on. If they thought the world was rushing by in the 1880s, he would know what to do today. We are so overwhelmed with so many things that we have to get done yesterday that it is very difficult for us to shut down and to be quiet and to think and focus our thoughts on Scripture and on our spiritual life. And yet that is essential if we're truly going to uh, understand and, and, and metabolize, make part of, assimilate into our thinking the Word of God. It takes time. We have to be thoughtful about it. And so we need to, uh, as he puts it in the next line, he says, spend much time in secret with Jesus alone. That doesn't mean going into your prayer closet. That was a mistranslation, the King James Version. But it's that fact that we walk with the Lord. There is a relationship that is taking place there, a communication between us and our Lord by looking to Jesus. See, you can't look to Jesus if you don't know who Jesus is, if you don't know what Jesus taught, if you don't understand the Gospels, if you don't understand uh, uh, Christology, then we can't look to Jesus. So many Christians, oh, I love Jesus, blah, 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 but the Jesus that they know is just an idol or figment of their imagination that they've created. So we have to know who Jesus is because that's who God is conforming us to. It's sad that there are so many Christians that have this false view of Jesus and they try to emulate this false view of Jesus in their life and the Holy Spirit is just kicking them uh, and, over, and, and, and spanking them over and over again because they, he's trying to get them to conform to the biblical Jesus, which is 180 degrees opposite this sweet little idolatrous Jesus they've created and so they just have all kinds of trauma uh, in their lives. So, you know, the words there are words that we need to uh, pay attention to. Now, this is what Peter is getting at in First Peter one fifteen and 16. We are to be holy. It takes time. Now, this is exactly what we've seen here in our study in Exodus. We looked at Exodus chapter 19 uh, to set the stage on this. And it took two days, and on the third day, they are going to go to the mountain, not onto the mountain, but come to the base of the mountain, and God will speak to them. So it took two days, more than two days, for them to be spiritually prepared for this encounter with God on the mountain. This occurred down in 
uh, Sinai. This is the traditional location is at the uh, southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula, but many scholars who are working out the details think that it was somewhere uh, north of there. Some even suggest it was all the way uh, to the far north. I'm not sure. I, um, there's so many issues in that debate. I've never had time to uh, get into those fully. And so we reviewed this last time that God prepared them, and by that he reminded them what he had done in delivering them from the Egyptians. And then once he reminded them of his grace in delivering them, then he charged them to obey him, that he was going to make them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And he's calling them to obedience And so then we saw that they did respond in obedience and they agreed to follow the Lord. This will happen again when we get to chapter 24, but that doesn't mean they are perfectly obedient because we know this Exodus generation certainly wasn't. They were, uh, they were rebellious and they were stumble, uh, stubborn and they were grumbled and they complained and they basically became a type of the carnal rebellious believer that is not following the Lord. But but this shows that this generation is a generation of believers, not unbelievers. And see, so you have these Reformed covenant theologians coming in with their uh, works-based understanding of grace. They introduce works through the back door. It's a works-based understanding of grace. And they say, see, see, they couldn't have been all saved because of the way they lived afterward. That, that as far as they're concerned, how you live determines whether it was the real real faith or not. But uh, all the people, the Holy Spirit tells us in Exodus 19:18, answered together and said, "All that the Lord has spoken, we will do." They all understand. They are all believers. They have all applied the blood to the doorposts at the Passover. And just like you and I, we can still be believed. On one day, we're saying, Lord, I'm going to do everything you want me to do. And 10 minutes later, we're just as disobedient as they were. Uh, that's why we need grace. And that's why we need First John 1, 9, which I'll be talking about as we go forward. Because part of the issue that we have and understand, and I've had, I get questions on this quite frequently. Are you really sure? Why do we need to confess sin? I've heard so many people say we don't need to confess sin. And you go to First uh, John chapter 1, and in First John 1, uh, 7, John writes that the blood of Christ continuously cleanses us from all sin. And people go there and say, see, because we're saved, we're continually cleansed of all sin. Now, that's justification. That's our position in Christ. If, if that statement means we don't need to confess sin to be cleansed, then why two verses later, two sentences later, John says uh, that we are to confess our sins? If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleansing is predicated on confession in verse 9, but if we're automatically cleansed by the death of Christ in verse 7, then verse 9 is not only redundant, it is unnecessary and contradictory. Verse 7 talks about what uh, uh, justification and uh, that position in Christ that occurs at phase one of salvation and First John one nine talks about phase two. We have to distinguish between 
justification and verses and sanctification verses. So Exodus 19.8, they uh, commit, they agree to follow the Lord. That is a starting point of worship. And then uh, the next thing that happens is they see the presence of God. It's a visible presence, and it's in very dark terms. They, uh, God comes to them in a thick cloud in Exodus 19.9, and it is he doesn't speak directly to the people. It's through an intermediary, the mediator Moses. Exodus 19.10, God tells Moses to go to the people and sanctify them. We'll update the translation a little bit. Set them apart today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. So they have to be cleansed physically. They've got to take a bath. They've got to wash their clothes. They've got to go through this ritual cleansing, and it's going to take them over two days to be prepared. It takes time to be holy takes time to be prepared. It is not something that just automatically happens in terms of our spiritual growth. So by verse 16 we read, It came to pass on the third morning, there's thundering, lightning, thick cloud, sound of trumpet, and then there's the God descends on, upon the mountain, and there's fire, and there's smoke, and there's an earthquake. This would have been extremely scary and frightening for everyone, including Moses is scared when this happens. This is a full full uh, audio-visual sensory ex- experience. And so when the blast occurs, then Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. So the people are hearing the voice of God God comes down on the mountain. Moses goes up uh, to meet him. Now, this is what the writer of Hebrews says about this. It says, for you have not come to the mountain, talking to church age believers, uh, reminding us and doing a comparison between our experience and that of, of Moses and the Israelites at this time. It says, for you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, and that burned with fire, that was Mount Sinai, and blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. See, that's what happens with it. They hear the sound of God and the, see the presence of God, and it brings, the, it's like Isaiah, when we studied in Isaiah 9-6, Isaiah sees the, the presence of God, and he falls on his faith, and he cries out, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. This is an understanding of worship when the sinner is confronted with the righteousness of God, and so the people begged that God would not speak to them anymore, because this is a direct uh, a challenge, it's convicting uh, at the very soul. It goes on to say, for they could not endure what was commanded. And then he quotes and says, and if so much as a beast, because this was the command, if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. Remember, they weren't supposed to touch it. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. Now, that's not in the Exodus account, but this was revealed to the writer of, of Hebrews. And then he says, but our experience is not like that. We have come to Mount Zion into the city of God. And this is used in a uh, an allegorical sense. See, Scripture does use allegory at times, but it's 
it's obvious from the passage because it talks about this Mount Zion is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, uh, to an innumerable company of angels, contrasting the experience of the church with that of Israel. Then we see that, that God gave them the uh, commandments, the ten words in Exodus chapter, nine, uh, chapter 20, and then in chapter 21 and 22, there is an explanation of this covenant, what the details of the covenant are. That goes down through chapter 23. And then having read or heard the covenant, now it has to be written down, and the people are going to enter into, they are going to accept this contract with God, and they're going to enter in, and there's going to be this celebration that occurs at the foot of Mount Sinai. In contrast to what we saw before, they're scared to death. There's trembling, it's dark, there's lightning and thundering, and now there is joy, there's celebration. They, the, the, there's no longer the cloud on Mount Sinai. There's no longer the thundering and the lightning. Why? Because peace has come between them and God. It is a picture for us of what happens what happens at salvation. So we have, a, as it were, ele- key elements of worship that occur in chapter, uh, chapter 24. First of all, we see a call to worship as God invites Moses and the leaders to come up to the mountain to worship. In Exodus 24, 1, Now he, that is God, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. Now who are they? Those are two of Aaron's sons, uh, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. So they are the leaders, and they are to come up, but they are not to come all the way up. They are to worship from afar. So this describes what is happening here as worship, which is what we're studying. And so we see that there are specifics that God gives to describe what is appropriate worship and what is not appropriate, what is acceptable and what is unacceptable. And what we learn as we go through these accounts is that when you have unacceptable worship, God at the beginning of this dispensation uh, will take their life. That's what happens with Abihu and Nadab is that they bring uh, unauthorized uh, incense into the holy place, and God strikes them dead. Now, he didn't do that every time, but he did it at the very beginning of the dispensation, just like he did in Acts chapter 5 with, with uh, 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 who is it, uh, Sapphira and, uh, uh, what? I forget his name. Ananias and Sapphira in, um, what's his name, Ann? You remember? What? Ananias and Sapphira. I had the A right. Ananias and Sapphira. And they, they drop dead because they're lying to the Holy Spirit. So this is, um, uh, this is how God operates at the beginning. So he calls the, the spiritual leaders up onto the mountain, but they cannot come too close. But Moses is able to go directly into the presence of God uh, because only Moses in his unique role as the leader of the people, as the mediator, functioning in many ways like a priest. He is a prophet and a priest, and he's not a king, but he is their, he is their leader. So Moses alone comes up and can come near to God, representing 
the people. So again, we see that, that worship is an obedient response to the call of God, uh, and whether it's through a theophany where God appears or whether it's through uh, the revelation of his word, either inscripturated or vocalized through a prophet, it is still responding to the sound of God. And so in verse 3, we read, So Moses came and told the people the words of the Lord and all the judgments. So as he does this, he is going to give them the, the, the words, the devarim. Now, this word devar is the Hebrew word for word. Uh, and so it refers to the, the, the Ten Commandments were called the Ten Words the ten Devarim. So this is a reference. Moses came and told the people all the commands of the Lord and all the judgments. That's the application, the decisions and the applications of the commands. And he does this in this covenant ceremony to bring it to the people and to say, this is what God expects. This is what God, the contract God is entering into with you are you willing to accept it or not? And once again, echoing what they said in chapter 19, all the people answered, not most of them, not some of them, all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said, we will, we are willing, we are willing to do. And the the phrase that he that Moses had used when it says he told them, it means to enumerate or to count them. It's the word safar, which later has to do with uh, the sofarim or counting, uh, counting words. So that was a term that was used to the scribes because they counted the words in the, in the Old Testament. So you have the response of the people. And this is worship, is how we respond to God. So what does Moses do? Well, in verse 4, we told Moses, is, uh, writes all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning, and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain. And so this is where there will be a sacrifice, uh, and this sacrifice is going to be the sacrifice for the covenant. Now, we're going to make some interesting applications here in just a minute, so you need to uh, pay attention closely to what uh, what I'm saying here, what is, what is going on here. So you have these 12 standing stones as pillars that are set up to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's very typical in the ancient world. They would set up these stones to stand them up on end to mark boundaries and to mark uh, special sites for that memorial in 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 uh, uh, sanctuaries, they would set it up to represent God, and so these twelve standing stones here are representing the twelve tribes of Israel, and so this altar is being built, and the sacrifice is to uh, to to lay the groundwork, as it were, the foundation for the covenant with, uh, with Israel, between God and Israel. Now, this consecration takes place in verse 5. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Now, here we have 
two kinds of sacrifices that are being identified. There are three that you find at the beginning of Leviticus. I'll take some time to just briefly review all the sacrifices a little later on. But any time a Jew would come to worship at at the tabernacle later at the temple, they would have to bring three sacrifices. Worship cost you something. First of all, you had to bring a, an animal, a bull or a goat, or if you were very poor, a bird for a burnt offering, and it was burned up completely. Now, this was, you know, a bull would be part of your herd. This is a valuable animal. And so it's costing something. You bring this, but it's all burned up. Everything goes and it pictures that your life is totally dedicated to the Lord. And that's the sense of the Ola. Everything goes up in smoke. Then the second sacrifice that you would bring would be the trespass or sin offering. And that is to represent the fact that your sin has been uh, dealt with with God. And then the third is the fellowship offering, the peace offering, which demonstrates that now uh, sin is an issue and you come together as one with God. These are laid out in the first three chapters of, uh, of Leviticus. But here you have no sin offering. That's been dealt with already. This is a feast between those who have peace with God and God. So it is a, a celebration. And with the peace offering, they eat. They will partake of the, of the offering. Now, that's important because the, even today in the, in the Near East, it is important that if you, have, if you have some sort of breach in a relationship, you're not invited in the house. You don't, you don't eat the meal with somebody. But eating a meal with somebody indicates that there is a uh, a fellowship, a peace between the two people. It signifies forgiveness. When when Jesus is eating with the uh, tax collectors and the um, and the prostitutes, and the Pharisees get their knickers in a knot over the fact that that Jesus is is eating with them, uh, because they understand that eating with them is a sign of forgiveness and a sign that there is peace with them. And this just runs completely counter to their whole legalistic theology. How can he eat with tax collectors and, and with, with sinners? And so this, this is all part of this, this imagery. So this is a picture of the uh, sanctified people positionally who are now sitting down and they are having a celebration of peace uh, of peace with the Lord. And then in uh, verse 6 we read, And Moses took half the blood, so he has sacrificed the animals, and he has these basins that he collects the blood in, and he took half of the blood and he sprinkled it on the altar. So that is signifying that the altar is sanctified and that this this represents the substitutionary aspect of this sacrifice. And then the next thing we see, see we've had a call to worship. We have had the response of the people in worship that, yes, we will do all the words that have been commanded. And then you have a proclamation of the word. We have seen that this is part of worship, going back to the idea from the end of Genesis chapter uh, 4, 
calling on the name of the Lord. It's making proclamation about who the Lord is and what what he is. So proclamation is very much a part of worship. And Moses, after he's written all of this down, then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. How long do you think this took? Think about this. This isn't like an American evangelical church where we come in at 10 o'clock and we want to be out at 11 o'clock. This took a long time. This is a process, and it took time to have the animals ready, to kill the animals, and then to read the book of the covenant out loud. We read 10, 15, sometimes 20 verses in responsive reading. If I read the Mosaic covenant to the congregation, how many people would respond? And they stood up for it. And this has been a standard in, in, in the synagogues. In fact, eventually we'll talk a little bit about worship in the synagogue. But in the synagogue, there were only benches. Some of you have been to the mock, mock-up synagogue in the, um, at the Museum of the Bible. Others of you have been to the synagogue that is, uh, has been uh, restored in Capernaum. Uh, last year we went to the remains of the synagogue in Migdal, uh, where Mary Magdalene was from and at Magdala. And so here this is a, um, uh, what we see is that they had benches for the elderly, but everybody else stood through the whole service. And their service was not a quick little hour like we have, okay? So it was a sign of they had great discipline. They had an understanding of the seriousness of, of what worship was all about and what they were doing. So Moses took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people, and then there's a response. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. Now, we know that it's not long before they uh, they they are sinning and they're disobeying God and all of these other things. But for right now, what we see is that they are, uh, they have made this commitment like us on our best days. Lord, we'll do everything you say. 30 minutes later, we're not doing that. But, but that's us on our best day, and that's how they were. So then Moses took the blood, and he sprinkled it on the people. And this symbolizes the fact that they, that this sacrifice has been on their behalf, and it is applied to them, and therefore they are set apart to the service of God on the basis of this covenant. They are positionally a kingdom, a holy nation, and a kingdom of priests, but it will take time to be experientially consecrated or sanctified uh, by the Lord. So, uh, he sprinkles this on them, and he says, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all of these words. Now, this is really important. This is one of three verses that our Lord puts together when he is in the upper room at the Lord's table. In this instance, there's the sprinkling of the blood, which represents the sacrifice, which is the the sacrifice for the covenant. Now, I don't have time to go through all of this, but a sacrifice doesn't inaugurate the covenant. 
what inaugurates the covenant. In fact, there's not a, there are covenants without sacrifices in the Old Testament. Uh, um, there are was a covenant made between Abraham and Abimelech, who was the ruler of of uh, the Philistines, and and they enter into a covenant over the wells at um, near Beersheba. But there's no sacrifice. They just enter into that covenant. They swear an oath. That's what initiates the covenant. You get to, I think it's in uh, Numbers. There's a covenant between God and Phinehas, who is uh, uh, Aaron's grandson, that the line of the priesthood will not depart from him, and this is a the priestly covenant, the covenant of the high priest, and there is no sacrifice. There is a sworn oath there as well. And so this is what begins the covenant. Now I'll come back to that uh, in just, just a few minutes. But what we see here is that when... When uh, Moses makes this statement, he said, this is the blood of the covenant. That's the sacrifice that is the foundation for this covenant. And this is one of three verses our Lord takes and cobbles together uh, at the upper room. In the upper room, he says, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So this is the blood of the covenant. That language comes from Exodus 24, 8. The blood, of the, the idea of a new covenant, not the covenant with Moses, comes from Jeremiah 31, 31, which, Jeremiah, which is the foundational passage for the new covenant. It's the only passage in the Old Testament that uses the term new covenant. And God said, Behold, the days are coming that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It is not a covenant that is made with the church. It is not made with Gentiles. It is made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In Hebrews chapter 8, the writer of Hebrews quotes this, but he doesn't change the language. He doesn't say that I will make a new covenant with the church. He still reiterates that it's with Judah and Israel. It is not with the church at all. There is no basis for making a new covenant with, with the church. The new covenant is with Israel and all of the things that are said about this new covenant, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the fact that you won't need to teach your neighbor. All these things are similar to uh, the role of the Holy Spirit in the church age, but they're different. They're not the same. And what's happened over the centuries is so many people say, well, this is similar to that, so they must be the same thing. No, they're not. They're very different. And when you read through all these other, other new covenant passages, that are, don't use the term new covenant, but they're speaking about this covenant that is put into effect when God returns, that it is at that time that this new covenant goes into effect and there will be a distinctive work of the Holy Spirit among the Jews in the millennial kingdom that is similar to but very different from that which the church age believer experiences. So Jesus picks up the phrase a new covenant from Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one. And he says, it is, you know, my blood is shed for many. Where does he get that language? 
He gets that language from Isaiah 53, 11, and 12. And this language of the many is used several times in Isaiah. But in Isaiah 53, 11, it says, By his knowledge, uh, my righteous servant shall justify many. And that is the Messiah will do that which will be the basis for justification for many. Contextually, the many here refers to Israel, but it is expanded in other passages in Isaiah to include the Gentiles. Uh, And how will he justify many? For he shall bear their iniquities. And then in verse 12, we read, And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. So Jesus is cobbling these portions of these three verses together to emphasize what is about to happen on the cross. He is going to, by his work on the cross, lay the foundation to justify many. It is shed for the remission of sin. Jesus didn't say it's the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many to establish the new covenant. Doesn't say that. Now, it's the blood of the new covenant because it is the sacrifice that will be the basis for the new covenant with Israel and Judah in the future kingdom. But his death on the cross does more than simply establish the basis for the future new covenant. His death on the cross provides the basis for justification and the forgiveness of sin. So the cross accomplishes, let's say, five things, and two of them relate to something future when God establishes the new covenant with Israel in the coming kingdom. And as uh, Daniel puts out, states in Daniel 9, uh, 26 and 27, it will bring an end to transgression, that is the transgression of Israel. So that doesn't happen until the new covenant comes into effect. But then these other aspects of Christ's death on the cross apply to Gentiles, applies to the church today, and is part of that distinction between uh, between Israel and the church. And so this, just just put that in. We'll get back to these topics a little later on when we're talking about uh, the Lord's table and the new covenant. So then Moses goes up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel. And what do they see? They saw the God of Israel. This was phenomenal. They couldn't make out much of anything on the mountain in chapter 19 because it was covered with smoke and thunder and lightning. But now it's a clear day. See the contrast between before they're set apart and after they're set apart. They saw the God of Israel and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. They're seeing the brilliant blue sky up there and they're seeing through this as a translucent foundation or pavement uh, the throne of God. They don't see God directly. And so they see through this. Now, this is not any different from what we read in Revelation 4, 6, 
where it talks about the throne of God. John sees the throne of God when he's taken to heaven at the beginning of Revelation 4. And he sees the throne of God and he says, before the throne was a sea of glass. That is like what we're talking about here. It says a sea of glass like crystal. You can see through that. It's got this beautiful blue hue. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were living creatures worshiping God. So so what they are seeing, they're given a vision of the third heaven in its clarity on through Mount Sinai. There's an intersection of this dimension with the dimension of the throne of God. Now, on the nobles of children of Israel, he did not lay his hand, so he doesn't bring judgment upon them because of what they see. And they saw God and they ate and they drank. They have a meal. See, this this whole idea of the, the Passover meal and the fellowship meal, the meal with the peace offering, the a Lord's table, all of this pictures this harmony with God, uh, this peace that occurs uh, with God. So it's all a picture of of what God uh, has done to open the way for man to have fellowship fellowship with him. And so at this point, Moses goes up into the cloud. Uh, Aaron and the others stay behind. Uh, and so all of this then is used as a picture of, uh, of that fellowship with God. Now, what happens next is when we get into Exodus uh, chapter 25, Exodus 26, it starts to talk about the tabernacle. And this flows now out of what has happened with the covenant. Because this covenant has occurred, because there is peace with God, and this is celebrated by this meal where they eat and they drink and they uh, symbolize this, this fellowship with God, they now God can now dwell in their presence. Now, the word for dwelling in Hebrew is the verb shakan, S-H-A-K-A-N. Now, if you take that verb, it means to live somewhere or to dwell somewhere. In Hebrew, if you take a verb and you want to make it a noun or a participle, then you put the letter M at the beginning of the word. And so it comes across as mishkan, Mishkan, and Mishkan is the tabernacle. Tabernacle means to dwell somewhere. And so this word shakan comes across in a number of different languages. It uh, comes across in Greek as the word, uh, the noun is skene, the verb is skenao. And in John one fourteen, see, this is to, all of this is to ultimately picture uh, Jesus Christ in his person and his work. John one fourteen, John says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. See, God dwelt among the Israelites in the Old Testament in the tabernacle. And the word there for dwelt in, in the Greek here is skenao, from skene, which is related to the Hebrew word shakan. It's the same consonants, S-K-N. So this pictures God's dwelling among the people. So I want to point out a couple of things as we get started. We can't cover all of this tonight, 
but I want to get started on this. This is the picture of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Now, what I want you to see from this visual representation here from this picture is it shows the the wall around the, the t- tabernacle, and it shows encamped all around the tabernacle were the tribes of Israel. And they were all organized so that each tribe had its sp- specific place in relationship to the tabernacle. Uh, inside the curtains, the wall the, uh, uh, surrounding the tabernacle, uh, you have the holy place and the holy of holies itself. You have the picture of the pillar of fire there. Out in the courtyard, you have depicted the laver and the uh, burnt offering going up on the on the altar. And and what what do you see here visually? What you see here is that God is set apart from the rest of the nation, from the rest of the people. This land right here where the tabernacle sits is holy ground. It is set apart to God. That which goes on inside the walls of the tabernacle is not like what goes on anywhere else in the world. And this is part of what we keep seeing in worship is that when we come into the presence of God, this is unique, this is distinct, this isn't like any other time, any other place in the world. And and we've lost that in our modern evangelical culture. We've become very relaxed with God, very casual with God. Uh, Coming to church on Sunday, we all get together, we have a good time, we laugh and we joke all the way up to the point that the service begins when in historical times from the early church on, once you came together to worship on Sunday, it was a time where people would be quiet and they would, would reflect. Now, uh, some of you may have noticed this, some of you may not have, but but for a while we were hosting a Korean church that met here on Friday nights, and the pastor of that church would come here usually on Thursday night, sometimes on Tuesday night, and he would come here early and he would sit back in the back corner here. And if you got here early enough and saw him, he sometimes he was kneeling, but he was always in prayer for 30 minutes or so before the service started. Korean Christians take their worship extremely seriously. They look at us as being very casual with God. Uh, Another thing that we did for about a month before they found a place they could use 24-7 is that they, they would come in here in the morning for prayer. And sometimes they would have five or ten people, depending on their schedule, And they would come in here about 5 o'clock in the morning. They didn't turn on the lights. They didn't do anything else. They would come in here, and they would just sit and pray for two hours until 7 o'clock every morning to start their day. I don't know about you, but I think that many uh, American Christians have trouble praying for, for two minutes early in the morning. They want to get their day going. They want to get their caffeine in them and all of these other things. But see, that that Korean tradition really does represent more of historical Christianity than what we do. 
because in the early church, they, they, of course, you're in smaller communities, you lived close to the church, you could easily go down and go into the church and you could pray. That was very, very common uh, much of the time. And we don't live near churches and for security reasons, we don't leave the doors unlocked and uh, many, many other reasons. It's just a different environment. But but the challenge here isn't to do it like they did it, but to think about the seriousness of our personal worship with God, that this is not to be sort of an afterthought uh, in our life. And so the visual image here is that the the tabernacle, the place where God dwelt, and where does God dwell today? Here. He's in each of us, okay? So this is set apart from whatever else goes on in the world around it. Now, this is a a picture of the tabernacle in the wilderness. Some of you who've been to Israel, we've gone there the last couple of trips in 2014 and then this last year. And this has been set up. It's interesting, the uh, grandfather of the man who is still associated with this, and this man is going to be speaking at pre-trib this year, that his grandfather was an SS officer who was involved in the Holocaust. And after World War II, he was saved, and he reared his son uh, as a believer and his family as believers, and he came to love the Jewish people. When his son became an adult, they built this tabernacle, and they traveled around Germany and Austria and and Europe, and they would put this tabernacle up somewhere, and then people would come and, what is this? And they used this as a witnessing tool uh, all over Europe. And then when um, uh, I think the, the son started having health problems in the 90s, they worked out a deal with the Israeli government, and they found a group that would oversee it, and they donated it to Israel, and it has been set up here uh, ever since down near Timna. So this this is a great visual. It shows you that this is an area that is unlike anything that goes around. It's very distinct. And so we see this outer area, and there's only one way in. And that depicts the fact that there's only one way into God. And from the visual that we're going to see is if you walk through the entry, what is the first thing that you encounter? In fact, when you walk through, if you're looking at the, the, the holy place directly where God dwells, what prevents you from looking at the holy place when you walk through the front gate? The bronze altar. See, something has to happen on the bronze altar before you can get past it and get to the presence of God. So these are just some some visuals to represent how this is set apart. You just can't come into the holy place from any direction, any way you want, because God has determined how that is uh, to take place. This is a look at it at ground level. From the outside at ground level, it looks pretty... Uh, average. I think this pictures the Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to Isaiah 53, had no nothing special about his appearance. He didn't stand out. He wasn't any more attractive than any anybody else. He just looked like every every other human being. This is 
what the tabernacle looked like. That's what Isaiah 53, 1 says. There's nothing about him that drew our attention to him. So we see the uh, courtyard here. We see the activity depicted in this upper picture with the uh, uh, brazen altar and then the laver. And here we have uh, a picture of what goes on inside of the holy place. So basically you have the courtyard. You have a opening at the entry that is about 30 feet. The whole distance is about uh, 75 feet. And you have this 30-foot entry, so that leaves about 12 and a half feet on each side. And you come in, and you can see that there's just a direct line. Now, in this depiction, they have the laver off to the side. We don't know. How many of you think that the laver is round? Oh, nobody. No, everybody knows this is a trick question. There are no no descriptions of the labor in the scripture. It doesn't tell you how big it is. It doesn't tell you what shape it is. It doesn't tell you, uh, I mean, it could have been a rectangular shape that stretched all the way across the tabernacle from one end to the other. There's nothing that tells them how to build that. But... Uh, And this just gives us a schematic. We're out in the courtyard. It's all about cleansing, positional cleansing at the altar for sacrifice, and then experiential cleansing for the priest because he washed his hands and he washed his feet. All this imagery, when the priest is first uh, brought into the priesthood, just anointed as a priest, he's washed from head to foot. He's given the the body uh, a, a bath, to picture his salvation, complete cleansing. But after that, he only has to cleanse his hands and his feet. This is what Jesus is talking about in John 13 when he says, all of you have been cleansed, but now you just need to wash your wash your feet. It's that same picture. We sin and we get contaminated, so there has to be this cleansing. Now, this is the picture that you walk through the gate, and this is what you see. Before you can get to the tent, you've got the altar. And and you've got to get past that. That blocks the way. And the altar had a ramp here, usable because it's hard to get up high enough with all the with a bull with a goat to put it on the on the uh, grate where it would be burned up. And and th- there's nothing underneath. This is acacia wood, which is very hard wood that's less susceptible to rot and mildew. And so that pictured the humanity of Christ and the bronze, which uh, depicts, his, depicts his deity. Now, it's going to be gold later on, but out here it's bronze. Why? Because it's depicting that he can withstand the heat of the judgment. Okay? So it's, it's bronze. And then you have the horns on the altar that had blood put on them. And that would also be used maybe to tie the sacrifices down. Underneath, it's just uh, soil so that all the ashes and everything would, would fall through. Here you have the priest uh, taking care of the altar and the sacrifices and taking care of the fire. And then you would, the priest would go to the uh, laver. Like I said, no description of the labor. That is one way in which it is depicted. This is another. There are uh, quite a few different ways in which this is depicted, and it's cleansing. But you had to be careful 
See, most of the pictures that we have don't do justice, so you had to have these various utensils because if you just dipped your hands in there, what would happen? You're contaminating all the water. And so there were uh, special pitchers that were used to dip the water out, and then you would pour it on your hands, and then you would pour it on your feet. And so this depicts that, and you have to bring the water. Think about it. You're out in the desert. Where are you getting all this water? This was a lot of work. Here's another depiction that that the water would come out through a spout on the on the side. So this and this shows you this is all built to a, a proper size and then this was in 2014 and shows you something about the size of, of the of the laborers they've depicted it as being being round. So we'll just stop there tonight, and the next time we'll come back and begin to look at the uh, tent of dwelling uh, inside. But the point I want you to get from all of this is how it's all about separation, sanctification, consecration, being set apart to the service of God. And that's what we're called to be, be holy for I am holy, be set apart to me because I am one of a kind, distinct creator God of the universe. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study, to reflect, to come to a greater understanding of who you are, for that is the basis of our worship, to understand your majesty, to understand your immensity, to understand your omnipotence and your greatness and all that you have done to save us and to bring us into a, an intimate relationship with you that we are to respond in gratitude and thankfulness, giving our lives to serve you. And Father, we pray that we might be responsive to this challenge. In Christ's name, amen.